companies flaunt the term digital transformation almost as if it's a badge of honor. It's a phrase that could signify an enterprise is on the cutting edge of innovation with a constant eye towards the future. But Joanne Friedman, CEO of Connected Minds, has another word for it. It's a misnomer. And any company that isn't constantly in some state of transformation isn't alive. Joanne believes that companies don't simply go through a digital transformation once and then pat themselves on the back. At least the good ones don't. No, she's of the mind that digital transformation is an ongoing process, and it's one she's been going through her entire career. An industry visionary, entrepreneur, and IT executive, Joanne envisions herself and Connected Minds as the leaders of the team, helping companies reach their goals when it comes to their IT needs and how to constantly improve. Coach is the best description because we stay with the client throughout the whole process. It's not just helping them choose technology, it's what do you wanna be when you grow up as a digital business? You have to define the outcomes. You have to look at the business model, how that company is gonna operate. This is what you're gonna have to go through to get to that point. So we act as a coach. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Joanne, dives deep into the world of digital transformations, how companies should be thinking about the process, the role a proper analyst plays in helping to make those decisions, and why it might be time to alter the phrase altogether. Plus, Joanne discusses the intricacies of IoT and why it's time to finally set some standards when it comes to connected devices. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Joanne Friedman. She is an IT industry analyst and the CEO of Connected Minds from Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Joanne Friedman. Thanks. It's great to be here. Look forward to a fun conversation, Albert. Absolutely. As we do with all of our guests, we start it right out the gate. Please, for our audience, what exactly is Connected Minds? Connected Minds is a disruptive IT advisory. We have a very different mindset and a very different outlook than some of our competitors. Uh, Most of us came out of uh, the executive ranks of large corporations and IT advisory firms, Gartner, IDC, the usual crew. Our outlook is different because we base our guidance and advice on metrics that normal corporations would use, key performance indicators. So when we give our advice, we do it with the intention of driving value from the get-go so that our clients can drive value thereafter. So we've already uncovered with some of our previous guests, and I'm not trying to make fun of Gartner or Forrester because they have successful business models, but we uncovered from from many guests that those ratings are based on how much you are willing to pay. <laughs> Considering I used to be an employee of one of those firms, that would be correct. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've, t- we've talked to a couple different companies that are trying to bring, let's say, better information forward for enterprise 
executive buyers because of that, because the fact that the big publications are, let's say, biased or influenced by their sponsors. And then a lot of times the reviewers or the reviews of like consumer review products, they don't really go to the enterprise level. For some reason, like enterprise level grade technologies don't really get reviews, not like consumer level products. Right. I'm curious, do you have any insight as to why? Why is that? Because these are our applications that are used to support huge businesses. Why do you feel like the the stories, the use cases, the impacts, why are these things not really easily read, consumed, or understood? Well, this is part of our value proposition. I would say, considering I used to be an enterprise buyer of technology, if you don't have the appropriate context when you're reading the review or someone's writing the review, it's going to be skewed to the max. In that regard, the issue is if you don't understand the context of what I'm trying to do with the software, what my industry is, how it's going to fit with legacy systems, then nobody is better qualified than the internal team to review product and make it fit. And this is where the downfall is for some of the analyst firms. You can't read somebody else's view of the world and then retrofit it back into your own environment without wasting a lot of time. So for example, what I used to do as an enterprise buyer of technology for very large corporations, uh, some with 20 or 30 operating companies under my purview, I would look at all the various use case scenarios that I was looking for a technology to help me solve a problem. And then I would put it through its paces. And only after I went through that process was I able to actually say to a vendor, show me what you got. And I could smell vaporware a mile away. And I think some of the advisory firms lack that capability because of time constraint, because of sponsorship, but also because not all analysts will understand every aspect of every context of every company they're trying to support. Yeah, that is a, that's a common theme we hear among what you just mentioned. That's a common theme we hear among different leaders or a trait we notice among different leaders, which is when you are not directly facing the problem, all solutions sound viable. But when you are in the problem, the solutions, you become more skeptical of the solutions that are being offered to you to solve the problem. Because you're in a unique space where you can analyze different implementations, advisory for tons of let's call it IT application oversight. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is why is it that so many people that are in leadership places, why have they had so many, let's say, negative experiences? Is that what it takes to become good at citing what's good, what's going to work, or have high probability of what will work? Does it take that kind of beaten up through experience that before you get there? Or what is it that happens throughout a person's journey that gets them let's say a little bit more skeptical as they rise through the ranks of an organization about vendor technologies. Sure. I would say the more industry experience that you have, not as an analyst, but as working in an industry, like I worked in pharmaceutical manufacturing for the first, I don't know, 12, 13 years of my career post IBM. Okay. So IBM trained me very well. But then when I went into industry, what I started to realize is that this notion of connectedness 
boundaryless and context all come into play. So the context is the business leader comes and says to IT, I need X. We all know that that's usually Y, A, or B. We know that off the bat. Then in terms of connectedness, well, how is that business person's problems connected to other organizations within the corporation? So you start drawing lines, the connectedness of problems across different functions of an organization. And then when you go to the vendors and you look at product, you start knocking off based on the use cases that you've come to learn in that experience. And also, I would say the question that I want to have answered by any vendor is, tell me what's wrong with your product. (laughs) Tell me where it's not going to fit. Because when I cost a solution for an enterprise, 40% of that is going to go to implementation. If I know right off the bat that 15% of the solution is going to be upcharge on implementation because it doesn't quite fit like a round peg in a round hole, then I'm going to upcharge that 40% cost to 55, which might knock them out of the ballpark. So it's experience, it's context, it's understanding how business works just as much as understanding how technology works. So when you work with your clients and you give them, or let's say someone's at the table trying to implement a new technology as a vendor, and you're working with a client and you break down like, hey, this is what I think the fee structure is gonna look like. This is the hidden cost. Like you just mentioned, there's gonna be at least 15% maintenance on top of this 40% implementation. It's just not listed in the uh, the current scope of work. Sure. How do they react when you give them this advice? Do they feel, you know, because, you know, on one side, there's a business problem, obviously, they're trying to solve. On the second hand, they're also, on the other hand, they also think that they're close to a path on a solution that is going to solve that problem. Um, and then third, let's say, is they have a reasonable budget in mind that says this is going to be within reason. And then you come in. I mean, it's not a negative thing. It's true. It's truth. Like, I always think the truth is, is the key. Like, I need to know exactly what's going to happen. Right. How do they react when you provide this information? I think if they're reasonably seasoned... IT teams at the practitioner's level and at the management level, CIO, CTO, they already know this. What they're looking for is a shortcut to bring that 55% down to 30. Gotcha. They're looking at beyond ROI. And we sell based on value for our services anyway. Because ROI is simply a metric to qualify for funding. It's never realized in a number of payback periods. It's about the value that can be driven by the acquisition and implementation of that technology. And nowhere is this more evident than in digital transformation. What is happening today in digital transformation? Because, you know, the word has been used, I don't know, I feel like I first heard the <laughs> in the 2000s, but, but it means something new to every company. I know that. What are some of the big use cases you're seeing for people calling in service providers like yourself? First of all, there was a huge uptake movement to the cloud uh, in 2020 because of work from anywhere uh, and a certain amount uh, in uh, development of the edge. 
But I would say I view digital transformation as an expression, as a BS phrase. <laughs> yeah, definitely elaborate. Um, it was somebody's idea of architecture. Yeah. Um, transformation is a process. It's step changes across an organization with an end result in mind, an outcome, something you want to deliver, whether it's more value to your customers, more robust revenue stream, uh, cost savings, productivity improvement, any of those things. So call it continuous process improvement. And then you have digital, a toolbox with a little latch that says I have 15 or 20 different technology tools that could be used to help enable delivering the outcome. That's what digital transformation is. I like to call it lean digital, lean manufacturing, lean operations, uh, more value to the customer in a faster period of time at lower cost. That's digital transformation. Does Connected Minds also help implement these solutions or are you more on the just advisor on the advisory side of what should go in or what will work uh, producing like I guess use cases to to do the we're um coach gotcha is the best description because we stay with the client throughout the whole process. It's not just helping them choose technology, it's as I like to say to a lot of people, what do you want to be when you grow up as a digital business? Because you have to define the outcomes. You have to look at the business model, how that company is going to operate, what it expects to be in five years from now. And then we reverse engineer it. This is what you're, what you're going to have to go through to get to that point. So we act as a coach. Got you. So when- when does the client first engage with a service like yours? Usually when they can't get the insight that has any impact. <laughs> Do you have a use case of that? Sure. We work with large manufacturers and industrials. We understand the IIoT very, very well. We also work with academics and government, banking, finance, etc. So what we've done is... If you've gone to one of the big three, let's say, and you find that you like the research, but you need to put it into your own context, that's when you come to us because we'll work with you through the whole process. And, you know, we get a lot of calls from people. Hey, I just have a quick question on X, Y, or Z, or can you help me understand how I can do this better? So we're kind of like the shoulder to cry on, the problem solvers, the validate your thinking folks, or the, hey, we're calling you to check in on how things are going because we haven't heard from you in three days. Did you, God forbid, get ill? Um, Did somebody screw something up? Where are you in your processes? And we keep tabs on all the different initiatives that are ongoing. So I'm going to, like I always do, I like to date myself on the different projects that I think are related. Uh, I know that I was part of, in the early 2000s, I was part of uh, a new human resource implementation, and it took two and a half years to install this thing. I want to know, 
are enterprises today able to install and upgrade, like you said, new business outcomes via digital, lean digital? Are they able to get benefit and implement projects now even sooner? Because you mentioned earlier, there's a rush to the cloud because a lot of companies, when the pandemic had realized that they're the fact that they're not offering cloud services mean they can't get their services or their critical applications to workers. Has anything changed in regards to how fast companies can transform? Like you said, lean up their lean, lean business. Mean, lean, <laughs> I can't, I can't do it. Lean it. I keep lean wanting digital. to say digital transformation. Yeah. Lean digital. That's right. So lean to your right or lean to your left and call it digital. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I know I've been say I've been in this, I've been doing so many interviews. I keep saying digital transformation. I'm like, God, I got to throw that out. <laughs> It's too long. It's a misnomer. And any company that isn't constantly in some state of transformation isn't alive. (laughs) I like that. But the answer to your question is, yeah. If you think about what I said earlier about defining the outcomes that are to be achieved by becoming a digital business, then you have some very specific tangible items to deliver. And as you reverse engineer and go back from that outcome through, let's say, execution, implementation, architecture, strategy, and so forth, you can begin to actually apply phases. And a phase one could be do a bunch of proof of concepts and experiments with different digital technologies to see what actually will fit in your organization. And this is one of the biggest hurdles companies have to overcome. They buy the wrong technology. They buy a technology that may solve problem one, but won't solve three, five, or seven. Oops. You know, and so we help them with things like that. Like, for example, there's a big uptake, not only in cloud and now moving into edge, but huge amount of spend in things like Augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality. It's all well and good to train somebody to do something in a factory using augmented reality or even virtual reality, but you're missing the sense of touch. So when they get to actually doing something or troubleshooting something in a remote location, it's very difficult to take someone who's used to being hands-on in the field and saying, now do it remotely because that sense of touch is gone. So what we recommend to clients, for example, is at the same time as you're training people with augmented reality or virtual reality, give them something close to what they would actually have hands-on and let them get a feel for it. And We've had very good results with that, whether it's wearing an exoskeleton or using an automated robot that pulls pick and pack off of a warehouse like Amazon does. Be familiar with the equipment. Look at things like cobotics, not just robotics. Look at AI with a different set of lenses. In other words, apply the practical to the digital. No, that's great stuff. Curious for yourself, you mentioned, you know, you've had a you've had a great career in technology. How did you get started? What what drew you into this field? 
<laughs> getting kicked out of med school. Yeah. <laughs> Talk, what happened there? Why'd you, why'd you get kicked out of med school? You're a smart person. What happened? No, I, I actually didn't get kicked out. I oh. wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, but I stand four foot 11. And at the time, and I won't date myself, uh, <laughs> there were not that many women accepted into med school. I got in because my marks were good. And about halfway through my second year, the dean and a bunch of my profs sort of got together and decided that I was basically not able to reach the table. <laughs> so how was I going to do surgery on people that were twice the size of me? And I argued it back and forth and whatever, but uh, it was an uphill battle. And I finally felt so much pressure that I decided to not pursue it. And uh, at the same time as this was happening, PCs were, you know, all the rage, so to speak. And a friend of mine was working for Palantir at the time and said, hey, you're really good with math. Come you know, try this out. And I sort of fell into technology and realized that I could apply the helpful side of my brain with the creative side of my brain, with the mathematical side of my brain, and still make cookies. And I was good at it. So it, it came in that way. And I actually ended up um, taking training from NCR, uh, learned, you know, not COBOL and Fortran right off the bat, but uh, how to do um, semaphore tuning and kernel tuning in mainframes as my first go. And I fell in love with it. Oh, no, that is awesome. I guess, where did you foresee this career path taking you? Uh, because a lot of times people kind of get into things and are thinking, oh, I'm going to be building this or I'm going to be building that. And in 10 years, I'm going to have my own company. I didn't know if you, when you first started seeing the possibilities of what technology could unlock, if you had a, like a 10 year vision for where you were going to be. No, I didn't. I was more concerned with uh, learning as much as I can. And the motto, my motto and that of the company is always be learning. So I left IBM a few years after I started, I decided that I wanted to go into industry and uh, given the med school background and the fact that I also happen to be extremely drug allergic, I said, canary in the coal mine, I'll go into pharmaceutical <laughs> just for the irony of it. So I never had a plan of starting a software company. I didn't do that until recently, actually. I took a, a five-year hiatus from Connected and uh, started a software company because it was on the bucket list. But when I saw the application of technology to real world business problems, especially those of, let's say, Fortune 100 companies, I saw the impact that I could have, that I could do things like turn a traditional cost center into a revenue generator and climb the food chain at the same time. So when you, when you decided to break out and do Connected Minds, one of the things that happens in service, I would say the service industries is there's a high level of trust. Like the first wave of clients are typically people you've already built relationships with. When you first started off Connected Minds, who was the first person or who were the first people or companies that were like 
Joanne, come help me. Come help me right now. Now that I can hire you, come help me. Well, let's put it this way. I had a, a stopover between leaving Large Enterprise as a CIO and becoming part of Connected. And that was one of those big highfalutin flip a coin and do a quadrant kind of companies. So I became a vice president for e-business uh, when I left industry and uh, joined the ranks of the IT industry analysts. So I did that for four and a half years. Then I was invited to join Connected, which at that time was an R&D lab, a sandbox for all the big technology providers. And I transitioned it from a five-person shop into a little more than a hundred folk in eight different countries doing basically a combo of advisory and coaching when coaching was not a thing. And so there were a few, let's say middleware companies, large technology providers that were the first clients. We actually were doing product ideation for a few of them and still working with large enterprises, but also I had transitioned industries before moving to uh, advisory, pharmaceutical and process manufacturing to discrete, which was electronics and high tech. So I spent a good 14 years in that industry. I still participate in the industry. I actually chair a couple of uh, committees within the industry for things like IIoT and uh, Industry 4, wrote a couple of books along the way, et cetera. There you go. Now, I want to dive into that thing, uh, some of your knowledge and experience in IoT. You're listed as one of the top influencers in the IoT space. Uh, this was by Analytica. So I was wondering what so, and then you also, I have ar your articles about how IoT suffers from a lack of standards. Yeah. So we know that IoT is young. That is still an emerging discipline. It's still an emerging technology. Where do you see the biggest opportunity for IoT and, and if they adopt these standards? Well, there's different forms of standards because one of the things that happened in my world early on, I did a very deep dive into industry four not only the manifestos and all the documentations, but actually kind of took it apart and put it back together. And I came to the conclusion that Industry 4.0 is actually a very sleek optimization strategy that although started in manufacturing and in an industry, could really apply to any business. And what it's based on is time to value. How do you shorten the time to decision? And where that ties into IoT and where the struggles are and why standardization is needed is because you have the internet of consumer things. You have the internet of industrial things, transportation things like cars, uh, retail things, med devices, ad nauseum, the internet of something. So where you need standards, and a continuity of standards is, first of all, to redefine IoT as being the umbrella across 
consumer devices and industrial devices. At the early, let's say three, four years ago, IoT was still the consumer side without necessarily talking to the industry side. But what industry quickly figured out is that if they want to deal with issues, business issues like mass personalization, I want my AirPods with my name on them in pink. They have to be uh, easily cleanable and a different, slightly different shape for my size ear. That's mass personalization. I can go halfway, but if I'm the maker of the AirPod and I want to retain my loyalty, I have to do mass personalization, meaning address all of the bailiwick that I'm asking for. In order to do that, I have to have my IoT integrated and part of my IIoT, my industrial internet of things. Otherwise, I have an open feedback loop. Manufacturing doesn't know what Joanne wants. Joanne never gets what she wants from manufacturing. Where does my loyalty go? Elsewhere. That has to start coming together so that the standards for security, for privacy, data transfer, all start coming together. So it's interesting that you talked about the on the industry side, or I would call it like the the actual business enterprise applications of IoT, because I see that, I feel like that's happening all the time on the cons- for me as a consumer, because when I read about IoT things, I always read about whenever I th- are drawn to cool application and use cases, I see it in the industrial world where it's like, hey, because of this sensor, we can then identify this and we could possibly manufacture or change this. But on the consumer side, outside of medical devices, why is it that IoT, I- am I mistaken or maybe maybe I am mistaken, it feels like on the consumer side, IoT, most of the offerings that are coming forward are really, I don't, I don't want to use the word basic, but I just did. They don't seem to be like, they don't seem to be necessary. Why is it that on the consumer side, they keep trying to sell me, like I used the example before, like a fridge that tells me amount of milk. Like that doesn't, I don't want a connected device to do that. But when it comes to medical, then I hear about how, you know, the iWatch can potentially talk back and send your signals, your medical signals to another application that could identify, hey, you might be at risk for a heart attack. I'm like, damn, that is useful. And then I see on the Super Bowl an ad about diabetics can get sensors that can tell them like, hey, what's your blood glucose level at any point in the day? I was like, damn, that is useful. And then I go take a look at a I don't know, like a CES brochure and someone's telling me I can power my coffee pot with a, with a, my Bluetooth app. I'm like, I don't, that sounds useless. That sounds useless. It is, why why it is there is. such a spread between what the industry is doing versus the consumer? Let, let me rephrase. I have a thing about lazy <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I don't need my coffee maker to tell me I'm out of running out of coffee. Yeah. I don't need my fridge to order my groceries because it's going to look through the list of what was put in there previously and automatically assume I want to eat the same things. Yeah. I'm tired of eating apples. Can I get an orange, please? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, there's a lot of value that can be added. 
But there's a question of security. There's a question of privacy. There's a question of when are the ISPs going to figure out that all these internet connect devices are not only using part of my data plan, but should actually be charged separately from my data plan? When are they going to give me, you know, an extra bill, so to speak? So some of them I find very useful, med devices for sure. But part of the reason is I think the consumer-oriented view of IoT hasn't caught up with the industrial view of IoT because the industrial internet of things is a lot more than just sensors that glean information. It's a platform to send data between machines. It's a holistic offering where you can connect cyber physical devices, robotics, cobotics, cobots meaning those that are smaller, lighter robots designed to work hand in hand with human beings. Very complicated to figure out, rapidly advancing towards the consumer market. Uh, look at Samsung for its handy bot. Hasn't been released yet, but it actually will load your dishwasher. That's a useful skill because if it has the capability to use LiDAR to figure out where to place the plates in the dishwasher and do it properly, it's the precursor and harbinger to what's going to come in two years from now. And that may be a cobot that can be there for the elderly and replace not all of the tasks of a personal service worker or a medical aide, but most of them. So that you feel more comfortable having a device and a person there to look after an elderly parent or an, a person with an infirmity or disease. That's awesome. I mean, I, I'm not aware of that new Samsung device, but I'm going to check it out now that you mentioned it. Oh, it's cool. I think you hit the nail on the head, which is in IIoT, businesses are typically using Internet of Things devices to solve huge complex problems where if they know that if they can transfer, let's say, information from point A to point B and point B understands what it does and can actually change the function of any downstream, you're going to save millions or create millions in efficiency. So it's an actual problem worth solving. Whereas I think on a consumer level, the manufacturers of IoT products haven't really found that true problem that a sensor-based device or Wi-Fi-enabled device can can handle for you. That's why you see them more in medical because that's like a legit problem. Like if I don't have my glucose reading and I'm a diabetic, that's a problem. Yeah. That's why we keep getting them these minor conveniences where they're like, oh yeah, this is this is going to help you identify, like you said before, what's what you should get in groceries, or this is going to help you wake up your uh, your TV or turn off your TV for you. I'm like, what? It already has sleep built in. I don't understand. This is helpful at all. No, they're they're not overly complicated. They're taking a mechanical function in a lot of cases and just automating it. Whereas in the industrial side, it's a people process technology argument. And it's not just IT, it's operational technology. Think about um, the manufacturing of a car. Yeah, You have a lot of robots. But then you also have people standing on the shop floor doing manual jobs. They have to interact, 
but they have to share data and be able to drive insight that leads to a better business decision. Here, we're starting to see those technologies filter down to the consumer side, but it's still a long way off. No, I agree. I agree. And, uh, but I am, but I do agree that uh, with you that it's really cool to see different uh, enterprise use case applications being done with IoT. So we've had some uh, cybersecurity companies on our show and they've kind of introduced some of the problems with that. But uh, so it's a, it's going to be a never ending I guess standards chase, as you suggested, where until there is a standardization, and I'm going to tell you right now, by the way, it's never going to happen. And you know, I know why it's never going to happen. Why? Because we still have different plugs in each country. That's an electrical problem. Yeah, I know, but people don't want to standardize. It's, it's insane. But they're going to have to, and I'll tell you why. Think about a couple of days ago in the news where a water facility was hacked in Florida. I'm going to check this out. Yeah, check it out. It's huge. It's it's very similar to what happened in the Ukraine a few years back. PLCs and machinery that's used for the electric grid, water systems, industrial applications, smart cities, those can easily be hacked. If we start to get the electronics manufacturing industry to finally get off its posterior and start. <laughs> no, I've been raising this flag for like two and a half years within the industry to standardize the fact that security has to be on board when devices are built. So the boards that go into those PLCs or that go into the IoT devices have to be just as secure from the get-go in that industry as the automotive maker has to make them for the car that they're putting those boards into. So go to the source. If electronics starts to build a standard around security and everybody else has to follow that standard, you're going to have security because it's a carrot or a stick play by the government. Oh, uh, no. Now, okay. So this is a different perspective. I 100%. Now I'm, I'm changing my tune. I was very quick to change my tune. Thank you. When it comes to this, this is serious. I'm reading this article. It's talking about this. The hacks are suspected like this one in Illinois, Russian. Yeah. Traced back to Russia. Motives aren't clear, but they did change the chemical levels introduced into the water. I mean, right. the motive seems pretty clear to me. It wasn't to make you healthier. I don't think... <laughs> They weren't trying to add fluoride so your teeth were better. I can tell you that. (laughs) No, absolutely. But, But if you start thinking about that, okay, that's a water treatment facility. What about the electrical grids? Yeah. What about medical systems, the parts in cars, hospitals, et cetera. I'll give you the best use case ever for why you need standards. Answer this question for me, Albert. Yeah. Why are robotics not being used to deliver the COVID vaccines? I have no idea. It would certainly take the burden off of nurses, medical professionals, healthcare workers who could actually be with patients. Why not set up a facility? I've been actually trying to build one because to me, it's like a no brainer. Take a robotic arm. Like a robotic arm designed to like, let's say, install a tire on an assembly line for a, for a car. With a lot more gentility. Yeah. yeah. Something very lightweight that has the ability to 
pick up a syringe that's filled or fill the syringes, pick it up, inject you with it. It's got a telehealth monitor. A person is watching you while it's happening. So if you have an adverse effect like I would have, you can get help instantly and put it in a, a like a small cubicle that you can mass produce 5,000 at a time. The only downside to it is if you're supposed to sit in that cubicle for 15 minutes to make sure that you're okay, what do you do for that 15 minutes? You have to be entertained. You have to have a telemedicine, telehealth, <laughs> a TikTok, I don't know, something to keep you there. And then it's just the transfer of people in and out. You could fill a football stadium with these. And I got the idea to do it because working in industrial settings, you see robots all the time. There is not one company I've found that actually makes this. No, that is fascinating. It's just hearing your perspective, just it, it has, I, I will say you've quickly changed my mind very, very quickly. And I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you for the very concrete use cases. Joanne. It is time now for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Now, Joanne, this is where we ask you some questions about your life outside of connected minds. Cool. So our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. You live in greater Toronto. What is your favorite thing about living in Toronto? Going on vacation elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, Toronto is a great city. It's not my hometown. But what I love about it is the green space. There's a lot of green space in the Toronto general area. There's good nightlife if you're into it. Um, There's sports, there's entertainment, all sorts of things like that. Awesome. So it's a major city, but drive 40 minutes outside and... I have a forest to walk in. That's what I love about it. As a person who's been to Toronto, I totally agree. It's also, for those who have never been, it's quite futuristic. When you fly in, the the buildings along the Lake Ontario, they all look like, it looks like straight out of the future, man. You land, everything's glass covered. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Where is the first place you are going to travel once pandemic is over? Because uh, you are in Canada and I believe Canada has some of the stricter lock-in restrictions. <laughs> That's an understatement. The NHL, the NHL changed its league format. <laughs> I would say probably Italy. Why Italy? Friends. There you go. I spent a lot, a lot of time living in Europe when I was younger and so have a lot of friends on the continent. Well, there you go. I, I, that, uh, Italy sounds extremely nice to visit. Well, you're welcome to join me. Well, there you go. I'm going. I'm my ticket too. It'll be easier for me to get to get home. Uh, unfortunately for you, you might have to go through some... Uh, they won't have robotics ready for you though. Or will they? We'll find out. <laughs> I don't know. Find me a good VC and I'm into the robotic uh, immunization game. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joanne, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. We got cut off a little bit there on the lightning round, but we want to make sure we get a full episode in with you. I loved your insights and your stories that you have. And I do now fully agree. If there is no standardization, we are just too vulnerable. All of our critical systems are just far too vulnerable Yeah. if we don't. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, a fun conversation, and hopefully I've been able to give your listeners some insight. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.